Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Jackson Pollock's Black Paintings. The Dallas Museum of Art is exhibiting Jackson Pollock Blind Spots, an exhibition that focuses on the paintings Pollock made between 1951 and 1953. Pollock made these so-called black paintings with black enamel and sometimes accented the paintings with colors such as white or the primaries. The exhibition, which is on view at the DMA through March 20th, features 31 paintings, as well as works on paper. The exhibition's catalog is from Tate Publishing. Gavin Delahunty, my guest, is a curator at the Dallas Museum of Art. His previous exhibitions include Alice in Wonderland Through the Visual Arts, Charlene von Heil, Now or Else, and Chagall, Modern Master, all for the Tate Liverpool. On the second segment, Joyce Pensado returns to the program to discuss recent work on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. It's exhibiting Focus, Joyce Pensado, through January 31st. But first, Gavin Delahunty, after the break. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. On view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, a focus exhibition featuring the work of Joyce Pensato. Recognizing the emblematic power of cartoons and their ability to critique aspects of contemporary culture, Pensato freezes and modifies some of the most iconic American cartoons and comic book characters, isolating them to further comment on American society and its anxieties. She works in an industrial palette of black, white, and silver enamel through January 31st. For more information, visit themodern.org. And we're back. Gavin Delahuddy, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. Let's start with kind of what the show is about. These these are black paintings. These are paintings that Jackson Pollock painted using often entirely black and other times almost entirely black. They're made with thinned black enamel. Why did Pollock, more or less, just wake up one morning and decide, that's it, I'm using thinned black enamel and only thinned black enamel? Well, it dialing back a little bit, what, what initially interested me, intrigued me, surprised me, compelled me um, to focus a Jackson Pollock exhibition on his black paintings, which are ostensibly made between 1951 and 53, was their diminishing presence in, in Jackson Pollock exhibitions. And that um, a cursory mapping of um, their presentation in the three large scale um, exhibitions that have taken place of Pollock's work um, since his passing. So you have 1968, William Lieberman had 17 of those paintings um, in his Pollock retrospective. Uh, Francis O'Connor staged an exhibition of the black paintings in 1980 at the ICA, and he had 11 paintings. And by the time Kirk Barnadale and Pepe Carmel um, curated their magisterial Pollock exhibition in 1998, a version of which I saw in the Tate in London in 99, they only presented nine of the black paintings. So for me, it seemed like, want of a better description, an own goal. You know, why, why were these works not being put, you know, 
shoulder to shoulder with some of the great Pollock masterpieces. And 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 the, the simple plan was to set out and amass the largest number of those black paintings ever assembled. Um, to your point or to the question of did Pollock wake up one morning and, you know, drop, throw out years of um, experimentation, development, um, improvisation, which led to the all over drip paintings, the classic drip paintings from 1947 to 1950. And the simple answer is no, he didn't. He was an artist who was competitive and was aware and knowledgeable and scholarly and was someone who was mapping himself um, observing um, artists of his generation, such as the Kooning, Motherwell, Klein, experimenting with black and white. He, quite frankly, was tired of being post the Life magazine spread in 1949. He was tired of being pigeonholed as this sort of wunderkind, one hit wonder, you know, three minute pop song that was a flash in the pan. You know, he wanted, he wanted to prove to himself which is testament to his character and himself as an artist, but also to his peers, that he was a modern master. And it is my opinion um, that it's in the black paintings you get that sense of urgency, energy, expressiveness, and belief that what he had learned um, in the all over drip paintings come to comes to a dramatic and climactic um, step forward in the black paintings. So why does he restrict or almost restrict his palette to one color to do that? It's a reduction of sorts. It's a, perhaps better as a distillation. Um, and, and, and so he, the all over paintings, classically, these labyrinthine layers are built up one on top of the other. And there's a, a very careful use and application of paint um, that moves really is generated from the elbow wrist. It's kind of an eye brain wrist nexus that comes from the elbow. By the time he gets to 1950, that his bodily extension has made its way up to the shoulder and he's making these expressive marks by extending his arm over and above the canvas. And the reduction to black is, it's actually quite interesting. If you map, if you laid out every single Jackson Pollock painting that was ever made, the use, his use of black as a as an anchoring foundational structural tool is very evident. And um, in fact, in the exhibition, we don't just parachute audiences into rooms of black paintings because that would be very that would be discombobulating. It would be fun, but it would be discombobulating. So we do we do open the exhibition with a room of six classic drip paintings that span 1947 to 1950 and we they're chosen very carefully and we we looked at an, a large number of drip paintings but went for a sequence that show the U Pollock's use of black its progressive use of black up to the masterwork number two 1950 and um, from the Harvard Museums which is the bridging work between the black paintings and the all over drip paintings it's only the second time that painting has ever been lent outside of harvard and it was the the a, a gift of the director of the museums of harvard museums and he said gav well if we're ever going to lend this painting now is the show to do it because it it's it, you can see how black as a color as a foundational color as a structural tool is bubbling to the surface and and then after that, he rolls into 1950 and 1951 and lots of experimentation with black.
So you mentioned number two, 1950 um, at Harvard. It is a painting that I think also has some white in it. So when, and maybe a little bit of silver. So you're, you're saying this is the transitional work in which he's beginning to expunge at least for a little while. Yes, it's a transitional some of that. work. You can see there, you're absolutely correct. There are a number of colors in that, but really the dominating color is black and it's, it's starting to coil and wrap itself around the other colors. It's, it's dominating the picture. Um, it's a typical number two is a typical in the sense of its totemic scale and it's also somewhat unusual in that it is fastened it's a single cut canvas that's fastened to another substrate with staples and so there's this feverish sense that Pollock is his the ideas are at that point in 1950 they're overflowing um, out of him and he's feverishly getting the canvas down and um, to get it you know to move on to the next thing and you see that energy you know the classic language that B.H. Friedman used about Jackson Pollock energy being made visible the physical process by which Pollock had made number two together with the energy in which he assembles the painting is all laid bare for you to see and um, underpinning it entirely is this explicit and dominating use of black. So you mentioned this introductory gallery of, of, of six works. These are six works of kind of what we think of as being that late 40s abstract style, even though we're discussing this one painting from 1950, but they're the, they're the paintings in which one does not find representational imagery. In a number of the black paintings that follow, if not most of the black paintings that follow in, in the coming years, there's lots of representational imagery. How does Pollock get from kind of those classic full field abstract compositions of the late 40s to letting representational imagery back in? It's a very important point. And I think first, the thing to know is that um, figuration representation, broadly, quote unquote representation, figuration um, was consistent, had been consistent in Pollock's practice from the 30s um, and right through um, to the black paintings. Now, that type of image making is, of course, veiled, hidden um, in the all over drip paintings that there is it's it's suffocated is probably too strong, but it's beneath the surface. Um, it's beneath the surface um, in, in how those works are made. But it, it a change, an emergence of figuration, a return to figuration was on the cards for Pollock um, at that time. And de Kooning was someone with whom he looked at with great interest. And the pole, the, 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 the diverging poles of figuration and abstraction, that, that debate that was raging at that time, that work, that that Pollock felt there was more work to be done, and and whilst the the all over drip paintings had pushed forward exponentially pushed forward ideas around figure ground and the relationship between the viewer and the and the object and notions of opticality, how we how we physically look at map and understand a painting, those paintings had forever changed the landscape. Um, there is painting before Pollock strip paintings, and this paint, there's painting after Pollock strip paintings. The debate and the discussion and the the artistic, you know, playfulness with those two, you know, enormous mountains of modernism, um, figuration and abstraction. Those, though, the Pollock felt there needed to be some sort. Is there is there a way? Is there a way to synthesize? And to weave these things together to create, again, something new, to, to, to see if 
That is not that is not that is not cubism. That is that is it's a development from it's a development from cubism and a development from surrealism. But is there a new is there an is there an alternate way to forge fuse and unite these 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 titans of of of, of painting? Could you pull out one or two paintings that you think are examples, you know, that have representational imagery in them that you think are uh, where, where the imagery is particularly important or particularly telling either in terms of Pollock's work or maybe if, if you think it's relevant, I guess, even in terms of his biography? Well, in the second room of the exhibition, which is very much a transitional room, it's work from the 1950s combined with 51, and you can see how he's he's arcing between all of the paintings using black hanging on to red yellow blue as this color structure experimenting with silver and black experimenting with brown and silver and then ultimately leading to black and white painting one i will in that room however we did include number seven 1951 which is currently lives the national gallery of art in washington and that work is Interestingly enough, when that was first shown in 1951, to your point about, you know, how did people react or uh, with this change of direction, distillation to black, return to figuration, that work number seven, someone scribbled obscenities on it in the exhibition when it was first displayed. That's how that was the response. It was like Dylan going electric. You know, it was something completely changed. You know, it, it was a it was a revolution. People were aghast. And, but that work, the figuration, and for the benefit of your listeners, the work is somewhat divided in two. There are these reed-like or rushes-like formations, um, poles, poles that are that seem to be in some sort of transit, uh, either up or downstream, that dominate the left-hand side of the canvas. And then to the right, there is quite visibly a head that seems to be in some sort of metamorphosis or splitting. Or, or embrace with another person. Or embrace, perhaps. or embrace. There are, there are, there are, you know, one could say there are breasts to the left, uh, yes. the left subject. There are clearly arms. There are legs. There, it's a, it's, it's a um, figures, not, not contorted, but they're, they're almost wrapping around one another. And, and that, that it was important for that is arguably the first kind of major um, black painting that Pollock made. But it, interesting enough, it seems to reach its natural conclusion in the, in the painting that concludes the exhibition, which is or much discussed Portrait in a Dream from 1953, which compositionally is, is split. Similarly, there are to the left hand side is a black painting, um, clearly abstract. And to the right-hand side of of the canvas is a is a we believe a self-portrait of Jack Pollock. So, I think the figure the figurative elements of um, number seven from 1951 sort of tee up um, what one sees throughout the other some 30 black paintings in the exhibition, and then reaches this dramatic climactic conclusion with Portrait in a Dream from 1953. Another work that is worth pointing out, and, and in fact, is the cover of the of the exhibition's catalogue. And when I went to visit it several years ago in the Ludwig in Cologne, immediately decided, you know, on the spot, that's the cover of the catalogue. And and that was for the reasons that, um, for good reasons, and for the reasons that you're alluding to in your question, which is absolute reduction of black, uh, or re- reduction to black. But then this... What first appears, it's 
sort of there's a passage middle to left on the canvas and there's a an, uh, what looks like a decapitated head but on closer inspection one sees that it's actually attached to a, a body it's a reclining figure of sorts and you can you can just about imagine uh, and project this kind of, this re, yeah reclining figure that moves makes its way across the middle section of the of the painting and there's almost an arm wrapping itself around the head in a classical pose ab- uh, absolutely absolutely and and for me that that kind of double take so oh my god it's like a dismembered head and then suddenly realize no no it's attached to something and then the and the painting leads you i think is an incredible work what you can't quite see in reproduction and th- this is again one of the great um, geniuses of the works that you they really really must be experienced in the flesh but one of the great things about um, black and white number 15 from the museum in Ludwig and Cologne is that whilst fundamental to the importance of these works is this combination of paint and substrate paint and raw cotton duck in this work what you see is Pollock playing with that so there is a layer where the paint is absorbed into the cotton membrane but then he adds an additional layer that allows the surface to sparkle and glisten and to to allure in a way that then he uses to to great degrees in in works like Moma's Echo. I want to come back to the cotton duck in a moment and the role it plays in these paintings because it it certainly plays one. But while we're still talking about representation and and figures, do we see or do you see in works on paper? Pollock beginning to move toward embracing representation more or earlier than he does on canvas in the late 1940s, say? I would say that there is certainly a freedom afforded him uh, when he plays on paper. And, and, and that was, interesting enough, Tony Smith and Barnett Newman, who, whom he was very close to around this time, um, it was Tony Smith who who gave Pollock um, an enormous stack of Japanese paper, and sort of urged him to experiment. and And it was in those early experiments and playfulness um, with black ink and and watching how the material was being absorbed into the Japanese paper that that signposted the change in direction for Jackson and and and, and to to consider unpriming or unsizing the raw cotton canvas and so instead of I would say instead of the works on paper and directly leading to figuration I think they 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 afforded him or allowed him a certain looseness that that it's like working out almost like working out on paper and so you kind of come out refreshed and, and and clear of thought and then some of what he learned about material be that the 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 cotton or paper surface or the material in the ink or, or black enamel paint that he used he learned a lot about those those elements and 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 then he he unleashed it um, on um, in the black canvases in your catalog essay you described what happened physically and maybe chemically i don't know if that's the right word when the black enamel pollock was using hit raw cotton duck and what impact that had on on how the paintings look i don't want to try to summarize it because i think i'd mess it up but what i what for lack of a better word impact did the landing of the enamel on raw cotton duck have and how did pollock use it or embrace it it's one of the main arguments and visual arguments of of the exhibition and in fact 
many of the canvases in the show are normally behind plexi or glass and we we negotiated with the lending institutions or individuals that they would be we would unglaze them in many instances for the first time since the 1950s so that people could really get face to face with this hugely important point which is pollock at certain moments um, with certain canvases decides to unprime or unsize which ostensibly means that there's no layer there's no membrane between the paint and the 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 receiving substrate and what that facilitates is he's either pouring or squirting or dripping and um, the black enamel paint onto the surface and it strikes the surface you use the word impact which is perfect it impacts the surface and it's both on and in the canvas so each line almost it has a triple role because what you see when you look at each of the lines on the raw cotton duck there's the it's divided into three sections there's the you can visibly see where the 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 line the black line in space strikes the surface and that's a kind of it, 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 it's very hard, it's very, there's a kind of central archery. And then either side of that, you can see it soaking and bleeding into the raw cotton material. And then where the ink and oil, they, they dilate, I guess, there's a halo on either side of the line, um, which is really residue from, from the material. So you get this kind of incredibly complex, linear progression that moves throughout each of the canvases so each line is in fact almost three lines and and that 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 was almost immediately seized upon by Helen Frankenthaler Morris Lewis uh, Kenneth Noland uh, later by Frank Stella uh, Rauschenberg Ryman Reinhardt and so on and so forth and that that one decision opened the floodgates to many decades more of experimentation and painting. My guest is Gavin Delahunty. We'll be right back after a break. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents CODA Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 Coda reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers, and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Mark Rothko, a retrospective, featuring more than 60 paintings by this abstract expressionist pioneer. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, which traces the development of Rothko's signature style. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Rothko for more.
And now back to my conversation with Gavin Delahunty. We've been talking about these paintings of Pollock's kind of within a vacuum of of their own genesis. If we go back to the late 40s and early 1950s, is your argument that Pollock is the first or the only artist to start artist to start going kind of all black or almost entirely black on canvas in the late 40s and early 50s or do you think that there is a movement of a number of artists toward a reductiveness or, or, or toward all black painting? Pollock, to my knowledge, is the first artist in America to make a painting exclusively using black. And that is also an incredibly important art historical sign, signpost, marker. The mantle had previously fallen to Barnett Newman's Abraham painting from 1949. But when the fantastic uh, Newman retrospective took place some years ago... The Philadelphia Art Museum? Yes, and a version of it um, was at the Tate. Again, I saw it as a, as a student, and I believe they undertook x-rays of Abraham and... They know it's now, and we know now this to be a technique um, that Newman used, which was to, whilst on first look, the canvas appears to be entirely black, it's actually a composition of, of, of various colours that facilitate a sort of depth, a, a colour field depth that draws your eye in and draws the viewer in. And so it's made up of, let's say, black, blue and green. Now, that was... That was shown in Betty Parsons in 1950. And in fact, we know Pollock saw that painting and himself and Barnett Newman were conversing a lot at that point. And I think Pollock, and again, back to, he was also aware of de Kooning's black and white works and works on paper. He was aware of Motherwell, of Klein. Um, again, all black and white, use of black and white. But Pollock, almost as a challenge to himself, decides to exclusively use black. And there is there is an incredible... Um, polyptic in the exhibition which is which is primed it's called untitled black and white polyptic from 1950 it lives in japan normally hasn't been seen in the united states in decades it's it's a extraordinary painting it's a single canvas composed of five units and it it reveals to audiences and certainly to me when i first laid eyes upon it this pollock um, throwing the gauntlet down to himself. Can I do this? Can I make paintings exclusively using black that maintain the tightness, compositional tightness and rigidity of the all over drip paintings? And it's a great canvas. It's all, it's it's one of those rare moments where you're almost, you feel you're almost inside the mind of the artist trying to work it out. Now, this work is primed, which is interesting. So that's very flat. It, the, you know, that it, the next, the next move from the polyptic was to, unprime the canvas and that really is the breakthrough moment so it's the reduction of the of the palette to exclusive black and then um, the the unpriming of the canvas that allows this interplay between paint and substrate that hitherto had not been possible by any painter in the history of painting help me out that painting is which one black and white polyptic and it's 1950 oh benesee holdings painting. that's it yeah 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 yeah, black and white polyptic, circa 1950. It's really incredible. You can just about make it out in the exhibitions catalog, but you can see where Pollock had pencil lines, got out his ruler and made these five very neat um, rectangles on which he was going to experiment. And 
he can't contain the line. It's like spilling and bleeding and splashing out into the other sections. And oh, it's a it's a really great work and it's it's huge. <laughs> so it's very impressive um, when you see it. It's just right on that cusp, you know, right on that. It's a canvas that shows you Pollock working it out, you know, working it out for himself. We'll have an image of it and all the paintings we've been discussing on manpodcast.com, of course. It's interesting to hear you talk about 1950 and about Pollock seeing Newman's Abraham in 1950. As I was reading through the catalog, one of the things I thought of right away was that 1950 is when Clifford Still arrives in, in New York, the third time he arrives in New York, but it's when he moves to New York to live in New York and sticks around for a while. And Still is making all black works on paper as early as 43. He's making all black, or at least as close to all black paintings as Abraham was in 48. Did you, in research, find anything about Pollock looking at Still? They were certainly friends at that point, about how that may have been going back he and forth. He must have been aware. You know, he must have been aware. And I think that, that is also the salacious biography that it, that has, has, for better or for worse, followed Pollock and his mythology since his untimely passing Often I feel when I'm, you know, over the last four years working on the project, speaking to various individuals, it kind of descends into that and, and, and people, you know, was he a drunk? And, and, but one, one has to remember that this was an artist who was obsessed with painting, you know, and, and obsessed with painters and, and had his eye on everything, you know. So was not, you know, didn't kind of spend his although the man liked to drink, but, you know, didn't, didn't you know, it wasn't, you know, the, 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 the parody of that, um, of the activity of drinking, which, you know, as an, as, as an Irishman, I'm partial to myself, the parody between that and his activity as a professional artist and painter is, you know, pale in, 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 in significance. And, and to you, I, you know, to your question, that wasn't something that I, rolled over in my research but he must have must have been aware yeah the the one of the paintings that comes to mind for me is is 1948-e a painting of stills at the albright knox one of the paintings still gave to the albright that is it's really hard to see in, in reproduction as is kind of so often the case with still but it's at least as black as abraham at least as completely black as abraham that should be the title of this podcast, at least as black as Abraham. <laughs> it's, it's, it'd be a great name for a band, too. <laughs> or an exhibition. <laughs> but it, I, it, it, you know, your, your essay got me just really thinking about where, where Still fits in this part of Pollock's life. Still had in his own megalomaniac mind the idea. I mean, he wrote shortly. He wrote to a friend. I, I think actually he might have even even written this to, to the folks at, at the Albright Knox after Pollock's death that still thought that he should have done more to save Pollock because he could have. So so still certainly believed he was part of the, the Pollock story. Of course, still thought he was part of every story. I think several artists felt that. And, and you know, interestingly enough, the next generation, that Pollock's death had a profound impact on the next generation. And they they were they it was a tragedy you know what happened to jackson pollock was a tragedy and they they were 
and I use the word somewhat provocatively, they were more sober to the art world, to the 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 social life to the the ideas of celebrity and, and that that actually played a part in 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 my opinion in in the development of of and the, and the the burgeoning development of minimalism and conceptual art and that kind of stoic reserve you know that kind of removal the artists kind of remove themselves from center stage and that is you know that is because they they were shocked at what had happened, Jackson Pollock. So we've been talking about these paintings. Maybe I should say I've been talking about these paintings probably too much as being entirely black. There are paintings from the peak years of the show, 51, 53, that certainly have color in them. Take number eight from 1952. It's a painting at the Wadsworth Athenaeum or, uh, or the very great, great, maybe, you know, a top 2% Pollock convergence at the Albright Knox, which features these Kandinsky-esque tones, primary color tones, yeah. So Pollock is adding color to some of these paintings, obviously not all of them, obviously not most of them in these years. Why some? Why, are, why, why, why do some of these get color? Why not? Do you have a, a, a an idea, a theory, research-driven answer? I have some thoughts. They... The 51 show was was not a commercial success. It was a success. 51 show the 51 of, of, of all black paintings. paintings was not commercially successful. Um, it, was, it was successful amongst a small coterie of artists who were thrilled, beguiled um, by Pollock's change of direction. But famously um, the gallerist Charles Egan marched up to Pollock at the opening and said um, great show Jackson but please do it in color next time and Pollock was hurt you know he he really felt he'd but he'd, he'd conversed with Osario he'd conversed with Tony Smith he really felt he was onto something with these black paintings and he was we now know with the benefit of hindsight that he absolutely was but at the time it it, it 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 struck a raw nerve with him and and that must have weighed heavily upon his mind um if i may one one work in the show that is crucial um to the 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 ushering in of color once more into the into the paintings is number 6 1952 which lives in the nelson atkins and that was actually one of the hardest one loans for the exhibition because of it's incredibly fragile invisible in the catalog but explicit in the exhibition are these white pollock took a toothpaste size tube of white paint and on top of the black painting literally pushed out blobs of white paint that make their way from the lower right of the canvas um upwards to about fifth of the way on the left hand side they that again decision um, that Pollock took to add white uh, on number six opens the doors to paintings like Convergence and it was that is the that is the transitional work in in that room in the 1952 room the remake of the Sydney Janice show in the exhibition and that leads to Convergence Convergence which has been off described as the meat and bones of Jackson Pollock, the black being the bones and the colour being the meat. It was 
obviously a large scale black painting of the scale of number 32, 1950, which is a great work. Didn't feel it was quite right for this exhibition, but the convergence was clearly a black painting for some time. And then Pollock decided to add red, yellow, blue and white. And he not only adds those colors, but the viscosity and density of the paint that he uses, the how he's thinned it down is something completely different again. And the color, when you stand in front of the painting, the color element seems to hover tantalizingly above this black framework. And it's really um, quite something to see in the flesh, not the least because of its gigantic size and, and really is one of those paintings where you truly feel inside and inside the work when you stand in front of it. If listeners know the experience of staring at a Robert Irwin disc and letting the eyes glaze over and the thing seems to hover there, that same kind of thing can happen if you let your eyes glaze over convergence. The color seems to to float and hover above the painting. One more question on these color works. When Pollock is using color in, in, in 52, whether it's in convergence or in black pouring over color, a painting from a, a private collection also from 1952. The colors he's using are very, at least to my mind, and if you disagree, say so, and we, we can move on. But but to me, they're very much Kandinsky's version of the primary colors. Any idea why? Red, yellow, blue is a familiar palette within the history of art. And I think you're right to say primary. And I think it's it was... They almost seem like little small steps, like baby steps towards making my way, making making my way back to the rain, you know, kaleidoscopic use of color in the all over drip paintings. So it's almost him like, again, um, freeing himself up, nudging his way back into uh, use of color and the red, yellow, blue seems to facilitate that for him and white like i, I don't think and white we yeah. shouldn't yeah. throw out white and you see that you see that in we already discussed convergence but number 12 1952 which was famously uh, damaged um, in a fire which again is ginormous and in fact number 12 1952 and convergence when they were first when they were shown in sydney janice in 1952 were were universally applauded Interestingly enough, color reappears, back come the accolades. And for me, one of the neatest uh, uses of color are these 2A, 2B, and 2C from 1952. And they're the, they're the smallest canvases in the exhibition. But there's a very, because of their scale, at least they have the appearance of this very carefully placed use of color and 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 defined use of color that that seems to be it seems different it's 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 the application is it's very different to how it appears in number 12 and in, in, in convergence and in you may also mention the great wadsworth painting and to me that they're they're the again though though modest in scale and um, they have a very powerful impact and i've spent a long time staring at those three um canvases it's the first time those three canvases have been brought back together since 1952 because the largest of the three had been missing. And we found it as part of the research. But they're really extraordinary. They're little gems in the show that tell us something about, again, back to your point, tell us about him kind of nudging, baby-stepping towards letting colour back in. 
Because that, that must have been hard for him, you know, because he'd made such a huge, dramatic departure. And and then to, a year later, resign himself to, okay, well, maybe I can try to reintroduce color here. So it hadn't occurred to you, or you don't agree, which is fine, of course, that that maybe he's using Kandinsky's particular colors you know it's not something that i alighted upon but i'm not going to throw it out because you know i think that again pollock was looking at a lot of a lot of you know he was he went to the museum of modern art regularly you know and he he looked at painting so finally question that's kind of a project spanning question what did you think about this body of work if you thought about this body of work kind of when you started the project and how if at all has what you thought about it changed as you've gone through the many years of working on it? The beginning of the project was whilst I was working at the Tate in Liverpool. My The, the Tate Liverpool, which is a beautiful museum, is a James Sterling building, but it was a, it was a storage facility, a 19, I believe, 19th century storage facility that James Sterling refurbed um, in the 1980s. And so it has a very unique and distinct architectural character. And... I say all that to introduce that my office in the building to exit, to to leave the building from my office, I had to go through the galleries. And one night I was leaving work and I had installed, I was working there as head of exhibitions and I had, I had installed, I don't know, weeks, months previous, um, number 14, um, 1951, the Tate's black painting, one of. And I, it, I, it's, it's sort of, it was, twi- it wasn't quite dark. It was twilight, but it was, it, there was an atmosphere in the galleries and this particular work just caught my attention. And that was the moment that I thought I stood there and then I sat down on the floor and I was staring at the painting and I thought, what happened to these paintings? You know, where, where are they all? This is a, this is a masterwork and where are the rest of them? And that was the genesis of the project. I would say over the course I interviewed a lot of people and I reached out to all the known Pollock scholars and to my, again to my surprise many of whom not explicitly but intimated a sort of disregard for this body of work and that only that only fueled me more and people were very quick to say you know well Sam Hunter agreed that these were the best five out of this entire body of work and Kirk Varnado thought that these are the best three out of this but you know that's and and I just I, I I thought well there must there there must be more to this so over the course of the last four years working on the project there are canvases that I think are some of the best paintings I've ever had the privilege to install. And there are works that I think are radical and and push the conversation forward. I think there are works that are provisional and experimental and transi- transitional that I think are also equally important. But as a body of work, you cannot deny their, their continued impact on painting today. Gavin Delahunty, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, 
The Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Welcome back. My next guest is Joyce Pensato, whose work is on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in a Focus exhibition titled Focus, Joyce Pensato. It'll be there through January 31st. Pensato was last on the Man podcast a couple years ago on the occasion of a career survey of her work that was at the Santa Monica Museum of Art in California and the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis. Since then, she's also done a site-specific wall project for the Rose Art Museum at Brandeis. Joyce Pensato, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, great to hear and talk to you again. Let's start with the work that's on view in Fort Worth. Um, You're showing a series, uh, among other things, a series of photographs of your studio walls. Now, last time you were on the show, um, we talked about and, and kind of joked about how your studio is famously messy. Why did you want to show people um, glimpses of, of what, what's on your walls? Um, no, a couple of years ago, I did uh, the show at Pestle, I think it was 2012, when I brought the studio in there. And then, um, and I would, I had put photos and collages all over the place. And then I, I did this similar thing in Listen Gallery in London where I was contained to one room. And I I want I mean, I feel those photos, collage photos, is me. As, and I wanted to present it. I felt uh, I needed to contain it. And so that's where I, I start taking photo photos of the photo or whatever was on the wall, collages, photos, to say, this is me. And uh, so I had it in my last show at Pestle, the photo things. And, um, and, and then we brought it over to Fort Worth and also to the Berlin Captain Pestle show, too. Two of the photos in Fort Worth show boxers. Um, Boxers, at the moment, their glove glove encased fists are making contact with the upper body, kind of the face-neck area of of their opponents. Um, What about boxers interested you? Uh, When I I saw that and when I did that, it reminds me of it's a motion of a painting motion. Like you got the brush and you swing it and all the splatters go over. So I, I take it as like a box, boxing, as a, an abstract expressionist movement. Mo, you know, no, feeling. And so the and it was like hit just perfectly. And I I got into uh, uh, Raging Bull and you know all those Muhammad Ali and you know great boxes. Images of boxes. Was it the physical act itself of? I feel it's the act, and and the splashes 
just hit perfectly as I on the photographs. So I, I held on to that. Did you act in any way on the photographs once they were printed, or is everything on the surface what's there on your wall? Oh, everything on the surface what was on the wall. I didn't know. That was it. What I what I started to do is uh, sometimes I would put photos on the side of where I was painting, <clears throat> and then just put it up. Or they were, you know, I worked uh, with postcards and stuff all around the canvas, so they do get splatters. So that's what was happening. Are the splatters interesting to you? Yeah, yeah, they're part of painting to me. They're um, expression. They can, kind of unifying the work. With yes, uni its process it's a unifying. Of yeah, it unifies the whole uh, space to me. It's very expressive. Another of the photographs in Fort Worth shows a woman with a gun with the gun pointing at the viewer. What's that from? Oh, that's, I, that's Gina Rollins from Glory, Casavetti film. And to me, that symbolizes me, my, my inner self, who I would like to be anyhow. And I... I see it as a feminist statement, as somebody in, who's in control and is protective and don't fuck around with her kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that is what I call my, that's myself, me, who I would like to be a blonde and with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a recent self-identification? Uh, last back? couple of years. Less, uh, maybe every, I think when I saw that picture, I said, that's who I would like to be. And then I really took a hold of it, maybe the last seven or eight years. It's so different from the imagery we think of in your work, which is often rooted in... Uh, cartoons, kind of the darker side maybe of America's fascination. Maybe maybe adult cartoons would be a better word. Um, I mean, it seems to come from a different place. Uh, the cartoon, no, the cartoons, I don't, uh, it's really funny. I don't see it as very dark, dark. It's, it's really, I love them. And they, more work on it somehow, I guess, I want to, it's like, my feeling of them is to own them, to uh, to make it my own. I hope I'm not getting off the subject here. Uh, no, no. It's all one to me. One of the installations in Fort Worth is um, Five Paintings of Eyes. Yes. You talk about owning the imagery and it not maybe being, you know, it becoming yours. They're five eyes, they're cartoonish, but they're not specifically identifiable with any particular cartoon right. character. I mean, they they had they were I was taking from because I I I observed uh, they're taking from uh, I think it was Bob Simpson's eyeballs and maybe Felix, and it's just the movement. No, it's just I wanted to have a movement on the canvas. Now he's looking down, he's looking up. Whatever, what is one eyeball goes into the other eyeball. This is more playful. Yeah, it's hard to find a specific cartoon character there, but their sense of being eyes that move on their own and eyes that follow you around the room are still 
very much there. I also wanted to ask you about um, something new-ish um, you've started doing, and that's including more and more color in your work. Um, your most recent show in Berlin at, at Captain Petzl features um, kind of the cartoon-rooted imagery you've used before, but all of a sudden you're animating it with color. Why color? It's always been a challenge to have color in, come in and to make it work. And I, I think uh, this was in Berlin show, the big duckies. Uh, head, I I allowed it to. Normally, I beat it down to live hints of color, but this time I, I I felt to keep it open with color and see where it takes me. Uh, is the the big clown thing? That's the most open drawing I think I've done. Uh, the two Mickey's double Mickey's are giant Mickey's, and they're a little open. Uh, but I find color is, is like is a challenge to me is to see to make it work uh, in incorporated in what I'm doing. So only hints of color in painting. So why is black and white easier? Uh, well, uh, for me, I'm more graphic at black and white. So I'm not a colorist. But some people are gifted at color. I I'm not. <laughs> It's not my part of my language, but as uh, you know, I would like to incorporate and make it work if I can. You know, one of the things about your big black and white paintings is that they really emphasize physicality and, and gesture and the physical act of doing things to a two-dimensional plane. I don't know, are planes two-dimensional? That might be wrong. <laughs> but I wonder if when you use color or when you let color in, if that changes the physicality either you, oh, I, you have I, or that you expect from yourself? I It feels like it changes. It makes it smaller to me, the color. Hmm. I'm sure, you know, I mean, they could be worked out, but uh, to me then it makes it it's a different feeling. To me, black and white is really like explosive. And when you're only using black and white, it may be permission to be as physical and gestural as you want to be without having to worry about balancing. Yeah. I mean, color will bring something else into this ballpark. But, no, there are way, I'm sure there are ways to do it. And so, you know, it keeps you going, the challenge of trying to figure it out. But I, I can't think of myself as doing I – think, I think it's a stronger image, just black and white or keeping it simple. When I, in the past, when I long ago, when I try and was doing it in color, I lost the image. So that's where I said, forget about it, it's not working. Because the image to me is very important. So in those boxing pictures we were talking about earlier that that are in Fort Worth, um, one of them is a black and white picture. One of them is a color picture. Um, although it's a color picture of a picture that's on the wall. Twice, oh, is that so De Niro the with the yeah? Right. De Niro in color to, I think, a close-up of De Niro from Raging. And so it, it occurred to me that, I mean, is that a moment of you in the studio contemplating black and white on one side and color on the other? Was that kind of maybe a, a gateway to color, the De Niro one? Uh, I don't know. I haven't really analyzed it, but it's a strong image. 
it might be a way strong. of bringing color into it because it's so strong that that those images of De Niro in uh, Raging Blow uh, might be a way because that's that color is like like a dream kind of really in your face. Blueness of the background pushes the image of the boxer and the glove forward. Yeah, and I guess blood splatters around. There's definitely some splattering. (laughs) (laughs) Were you interested in the history of boxing in American art? Because there's a lot of it. I mean, there have been whole exhibitions. I think the Walker Art Center about 15 or 20 years ago did a whole show on on boxing in American art. No, I just I just started in interest in like the last couple of years, and and then I got into looking at boxes and photographs of boxing, and uh, and you know what they look like, what they were doing. No, not really. It's uh, it's easy to see why the uh, imagery and the physicality attracts artists, though, because it's. Um, it's both dynamic, but it is possible to be captured by a camera. Right, right. You know, it's just a visual, beautiful visual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Joyce Pensato, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you again, and have a, a great New Year's. Happy New Year to you, too. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.